Welcome to our Sunday evening service. We're glad to have you join us tonight. Pray that our service will be a blessing to you. I want to share with all of our members, I mentioned this morning that Evelyn Bueno passed away this past week, and uh, Evelyn was 97 years old. And I can only hope if God would let me live to be 97, I could be as healthy as she was. But uh, she had a stroke and some things, and <clears throat> but she went home to be with the Lord, and she was kind of anxious for that. Funerals, uh, tomorrow I'll do a graveside funeral. I'd appreciate your prayers, 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. And then I've asked you to pray about getting our church open once again. And uh, we're looking at different things that we might be able to do, maybe a drive-in service or, or maybe open the church up. Uh, it's gone on long enough. Matter of fact, it's too long. And uh, we're anxious to get back to where we can have church. And um, while, while we're thankful that we can stream the services, it, <clears throat> it just doesn't take the place of being able to meet in the church house and uh, get together and and sing the songs of praise and, and uh, fellowship together. Then I mentioned this this morning, and I'm asking our folks to be much in prayer. And, and uh, this Thursday, asking you to fast and pray, a 12-hour fast from 7 in the morning till 7 in the evening, and uh, praying and begging God to get our churches open, not just ours, but churches across the country. And uh, there are different churches in different areas who are facing persecution and uh, being told they can't have services. And <clears throat> sadly, even when we do uh, have services and when we're able to open it up, uh, we're still going to have some restrictions. So we just ask you to fast and pray with us on Thursday, 12-hour fast from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And uh, beg God to get our churches open once again. We're in Second Peter again tonight. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9, I want you to follow along with me as I read, <coughs> excuse me. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world, of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, 
making them an ensample to those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. Father, thank you once again that we can have your word and we can uh, preach your word. I pray that you would help me, give me strength of voice tonight, and I pray that you would speak to hearts through this passage of Scripture. And Lord, it's sad that there are false teachers and preachers who, who are propagating false gospels, and, and uh, we have to be on guard. We have to be on lookout. Help us to be a people who are heeding the warning, being careful who we follow and who we listen to. Thank you for your word that we can compare every, every preacher's message against the word of God and know who's truthful and who's not. And we thank you for the word of God that we can stand on. We ask you to bless now in this time together, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Title this simply, Danger Ahead. Danger Ahead. <clears throat> At the close of chapter 2, or chapter 1, uh, the apostles stated that the Old Testament prophets were men who spoke because they were led by the Holy Spirit to do so. Now, as we begin chapter 2, Peter reminds us that there were false prophets in the Old Testament times as well. Then Peter gives words of warning to the church of today that just as there were teachers and preachers of, of the truth so are there false preachers and teachers, and we need to be on guard and aware. What Peter writes can be broken down into three main thoughts, really. First of all, the fact that there will be false teachers in the church. Second, that these would deceive and make merchandise of the ministry. And then thirdly, that though their judgment may be delayed, it will be certain. So I want you to notice with me, First of all, the presence of false teachers. There's their certainty. Israel had many true prophets of God. And we're familiar with names like Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and on and on. We could go with the names of the true prophets of God in the Old Testament. But they also had many false prophets. Peter warns here that just as there were false prophets among the people of Israel, there will be false teachers among God's people even today. Paul sounded the same uh, warning about the appearance of false teachers over in Acts chapter 20. Go over there if you will. Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. Paul writes there, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And so from the time of the birth of the church until today, there have been false prophets and false teachers and preachers, and we need to be on guard. And then <clears throat> Peter goes on, and he talks about their damnable teaching. And he brings out that these false teachers secretly or covertly, if you will, privily introduce false doctrines into the church. 
They're very subtle. They're very sly. And uh, they, they bring in false doctrines. Uh, their doctrines are destructive. They're damnable uh, heresies. And that means destructive. And their false doctrines replace the truths of God's word. And we said Paul gave a similar warning uh, over there in the book of Acts. He gives another uh, warning about the infiltration of false teachers into the fellowship of believers over in 2 Corinthians. Go over there for a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. Paul's writing here and he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So here's Peter giving a warning, and the same kind of warning Paul had given over this same issue that there would be false teachers and false preachers and God's people have to be on guard. Now, their doctrines are their own heretical opinions. They're not preaching the truth of God's word. They're coming up with their own doctrines, uh, own, uh, their own ideas about what should be and how things should be and declaring them as what God says. And we know that that's a lie. These are opinions that are clearly contrary to biblical teachings. Their heresies are not just opinions over which believers can differ, but they're an absolute opposition to truths from the Word of God. Let me, let me illustrate this. There are some things that we as believers can, can have differing opinions over. For instance, I thought about when the church started. There, there are some men who believe the church started in the Gospels, and some men who believe it started... Uh, on, at, the, at the Last Supper. Some men believe it started on the day of Pentecost. I hold to that position. But uh, there's room there for people to have different opinions because you can support your opinion from the Scriptures. So there, there are places where we can, we can have differences. Uh, the Lord's Supper. There's a difference of opinion among, among preachers about whether the Lord's Supper should be open. That means anybody can partake or what they call close. That means only saved people can participate. And then there's closed, which we practice here, which means only saved, baptized members of the church are able to participate. But there's room in, 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 that, in, in that for disagreement. Uh, we're not disagreeing with basic Bible, fundamental Bible doctrines when we have these opinions. Now, their denial here, uh, at the end of their heretical teaching is the demand of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And Peter brings that out here. He says, they, uh, and many shall fo follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And uh, false teachers are going to bring in these damnable heresies, denying the Lord that bought them. Boy, that kind of jumps out at you. The very one who died in their place, they deny and bring upon themselves swift destruction. At the very heart of their heretical teaching and preaching is the denial of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. They undermine, they, they uh, attack, if you will, 
in a, in a very subtle way the fact that the only way of salvation is through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. They like to add works. They like to add uh, religious uh, things, keeping religious uh, rights and that kind of thing uh, for salvation. And so at the heart of, 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 their, of their denial is, again, this denial of the redemptive work of Christ. Their denial is both intellectual and practical. They deny in the Lord in what they believe, and they deny the Lord in how they live. I want to read you a quote. Somebody said this, The false teacher's denial amounts to a repudiation of the fundamental, fundamental doctrine that Christ died for their sins. In so doing, they deliberately refuse to accept the truth revealed in the Scriptures about the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are misguided, but more than that, they refuse God's truth in preference to their own views of salvation. They profess to, profess to be something they are not. They carry their Bibles and use orthodox terms, but with unorthodox meanings. Their views are reinterpretations which amount to um, misinterpretations of sound doctrine. And so we see the, the, it's a repudiation, if you will, from these false teachers of the fundal, fundamental doctrine that Christ died for our sins. And of course, that, that is the basis of the gospel account. And then in, in verse 1, he talks about their destruction. He says that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. The end of their denial, the ultimate land, is going to be self-swift destruction. And when it has destruction there, understand that's not annihilation. But it's an everlasting ruin. And so we find there the judgment of these. We'll talk a little more about it later, but over in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, we find that God will judge them. 21.8 says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what awaits these false teachers and preachers is God's judgment. So the first thing we see, we see the presence of false teachers. And then in verse 2, we see the followers of false teachers. And it says there, and many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Their converts are considerable. He says many are going to be deceived by them and follow their pernicious ways. The false teachers appeal to the flesh. Thereby they draw away many people into their heresies. These are uh, people who offer other means of salvation uh, Differ from, different from the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of redemption for us. They draw many into their heresies. And uh, he's, Jesus talked about this, and I thought about this over in Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> verses 13 and 14. How people will go after false teaching and false ways and, and the fact is this, more will go after false teaching and false ways than will go after the truth. 
in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7, Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, or narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And so understand, and it's a sad thing, but it's a true thing, the majority of people are going to go on the broad way to destruction because it's the easier way, and it's, uh, they fall, their flesh loves it, and they follow their flesh. So there are many, he says, and these offer another means of salvation, work salvation, religion salvation, etc. And their converts are corrupt. Those who follow them follow their pernicious ways. Pernicious is a very interesting word. Basically what it means is unbridled lust. It speaks of the excess and the extremes of immorality that, that these people will follow. And uh, the, the word that's translated here, pernicious ways, is a strong term conveying the idea of extreme debauchery. It expresses the most reckless and sinful and debased kind of unbridled lust and licentious living. Hmm. I came across an example of one of the uh, heretical teachings in the early church was the idea that God, is not that God is concerned about the soul, but he's not concerned about the body. Its proponents then claim that since the body perishes at death, no one will be held accountable for the sins of the flesh. Now think about this. If that were true, can you imagine the wicked behavior that such a view would breed? A person could gratify any lustful desire he wanted without fear of ever facing judgment. It would be a license to live as one pleased. By the way, I'm concerned about what's going on in some of our so-called fundamental Bible-believing churches where preachers are preaching that we're saved by grace and, and uh, it doesn't matter how we live, that we're under grace and, and uh, allowing people to be licentious in their style of living. And uh, that's alarming to me because that's not biblical. But that's another sermon. And then we see in the latter part of verse 2 that the, their influence is damning. Their doctrine and their lifestyle are not on the side of God's truth, but they're in opposition to God's truth. And this causes many who observe their lifestyles to reject the gospel message. People, people see that these are, these are supposed to be Christians and, and uh, they're living uh, the, the pernicious lifestyles and it causes people to say, if that's a Christian, then I want nothing to do with it. And we find that sometimes even in our churches today. Christians have such a bad testimony that it, it, uh, it taints people's thoughts and ideas about the true gospel and uh, salvation in itself. Hmm. The warning that ungodly conduct brings reproach on God's name is clearly illustrated here. And then notice their motivation is greed. Look at verse 3 now. And through covetousness, 
Shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not? He says, through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. What he's saying there is the ministry for these false teachers and preachers is all about money. They increase their income by building a large following. And uh, to build a large following, they tickle ears. They tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And uh, they make people feel good so that they'll keep coming around and putting their money in the offering plate. I came across this information. I'm going to share it with you. Do with it what you want. But we find these, these, uh, these same things true today. By the way, that, that feigned words that it talks about there are words that are molded or fabricated to their own liking. Actually, the word feigned there, we get our word plastic from it, which you can mold and shape any way you want. And so that's what they do. They twist things the way they want them to be. And uh, some well-known preachers of today fit this bill. And uh, I checked on the computer, and I found Kenneth Copeland. Now, he's on the television, and uh, he is, his net worth is $27 million, and he owns a $26 million jet, and he lives in a $6 million home. Hmm. Sounds like he's in it for the money to me. Then there's Joel Osteen. His net worth is 40 to $60 million. He lives in a 17,000-foot, a square-foot home that's valued at $10.5 million. Hmm. T.D. Jakes. Some of you may be familiar with him. His net worth is $154 million. And if I'm not mistaken, he's the one that wanted the, the uh, church to buy him a new airplane. I think that was him. Was that him? You don't remember either. And Benny Hinn. Oh, we don't want to forget old Benny. <laughs> Benny Hinn. His, his net worth is $52 million. One more, Creflo Dollar another television preacher. His net worth is $27 million. Now, just stop and think about this. Now, we're very big on missionaries and getting the gospel to the world. Can you imagine how much work could be done, how many people could be supported to do the work of the ministry if these men wouldn't be sitting on all this wealth? Doesn't seem to bother them. Well, then he goes on in, in that verse and he says this. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. As I said, there's a, there's a time of judgment coming. And then God uh, gives us examples here of the judgment that he's brought on people and uh, how he is the God of judgment. We begin in verse 4, where he talks about how God didn't spare the angels. To underscore the certainty of God's judgment, Peter uses three examples of divine judgment from the book of Genesis. 
He demonstrates by doing this that God has judged in the past and therefore can be expected and understood to be judging in the future. The judgment of heretics in the church is a certain judgment. And he uses as the first example the fallen angels in verse 4. But if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Uh, there's a little controversy uh, about this particular verse, uh, some different opinions, but uh, a lot of people believe he's talking there about the angels that came down and cohabitated with women here on earth and they, uh, over in Genesis chapter 6. They left their position in heaven to come down to earth and cohabitate, and uh, their wicked deeds were fulfilled through inhabiting human bodies capable of sexual activity, and the result was the birth of giants. And I lean towards, towards that understanding. I believe uh, that they did cohabitate, and there was a, a, uh, a race born that God uh, had to deal with, and that's one reason he brought the flood and destroyed the world. Well, these angels, the Bible says, God cast them down into hell and confined them to hell and chained them to the lowest part of hell. Uh, it's referred to oftentimes as Tartarus. And uh, these fallen angels are being held in the densest, darkest, furthest extreme from the dazzling light that they once enjoyed in God's presence. And they're awaiting their final judgment. Listen, their being chained in hell is not the end of their judgment. You say, what are you talking about? Go over to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And uh, they're going to be cast, they're, they're chained in hell and they're going to be cast in that lake of fire with the devil and all his crowd. So God's judgment came upon them and there's still further judgment awaiting them. And then he uses another example about the old world. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here's the universal flood of Noah's day. And it's an illustration of God's direct intervention in punishing sin. Man's wickedness was great, we learn in Genesis, in the days of Noah. The imagination of his thoughts were only evil continually. And uh, I thought about this, and, and I preached about this not too long ago, how it was in the days of Noah so it's going to be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And you know, we're seeing things today that we never thought we'd see in America. We're seeing wickedness, and we're seeing, uh, well, the homosexual scene, the abortion scene, the liberalness of people's lives in general. We never thought we'd see some of the things we're seeing today. Transvestites, transgenderism, 
These are, all, these are all relatively new terms and terminology that we're having to deal with because of the day we're living in. And it's, it's like it was in the days of Noah. The human race was corrupt to its very core. It was filled with violence. And God brought a flood that destroyed the world and man, man who he had created. Noah and his family were the only ones spared. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, we're told in verse 5 there. A preacher of righteousness, and he believed God and spent 120 years preaching and building the ark. He was righteous. He was a God-fearing man. He was a man who no doubt was mocked and ridiculed by his peers for what he believed and what he was doing. And yet he and his family are the only ones that were allowed to survive. And it makes us realize that we as believers today live among the ungodly people and we suffer the mocking and the ridicule and the, uh, the uh, uh, laughing and, and scoffing at what we believe of the unsaved people. You know, a lot of the unsaved think we're wacko. Because we believe in living for the Lord. We believe in trying to live a clean life. We believe that there's coming a day of judgment. We believe in the rapture coming. Uh, we believe that one day uh, Christ is going to come and the trump's going to sound and we're going to be caught up to be with him and bodies are going to come out of the grave. We believe all that because it's not a fairy tale. No man made up what we believe. We find it in the Word of God. And if God said it, you can bank on it. But the world laughs at us. They say, you, 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 you folks are wacko. You go to church how many times a week? Of course, right now, we can't go. But normally, we would be in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. And then we'd come out on Thursday night to go soul winning. And, uh, and we'd put our tithes and offerings in the offering plate. By the way, let me say thank you to those who are being so faithful to paying the tithe and uh, your mission's offering, and, and uh, yeah, you, you haven't abandoned the church. And we're very thankful for that, and uh, praise the Lord for that. But Noah was a righteous man, God-fearing man, and uh, he suffered a lot of persecution and mocking and ridicule, and so shall we. But God will one day call all men to account for the final judgments. And we need to follow Noah's faithful example of perseverance and faithfulness. And then the next example he gives is Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says some interesting things here. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. That, that kind of scares me. Because he says there... Sodom and Gomorrah ought, to be, Gomorrah ought to be an example to those who are going to live ungodly. And I see America going right down that road. And uh, it, it, it troubles me. And he goes in verse 7, he says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now this is interesting when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's his third example when he's giving an example of God uh, not sparing judgment. 
We know the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah were extremely wicked and ungodly. They were cesspools, those two cities were cesspools of sexual perversion, much like America is becoming very quickly. And God made an example of these cities, underscoring the truth that his judgment will eventually arrive on the ungodly. Sooner or later, judgment will come. But as we read about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter brings out that God spared Lot and his two daughters. Somebody said this, that Lot was a righteous man may come as a surprise after reading the Genesis account. He appears as a man who has strayed a long way from God. Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man who was distressed terribly by the behavior of the citizenry of Sodom. And you know, that kind of jumped out at me a little bit. I really never gave much thought to that. I, always, I guess I always just assumed that Lot was okay with the behavior of the people, but he wasn't. According to Peter here, his, 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 he says there, um, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So we find Lot, who we're told is just and a righteous man, living in a cesspool of sin and having to deal with it day by day. And again, it reminded me of where we are today in our country. The sin vexes our soul. We think about the abortions that are taking place. And you know, how hypocritical is our country in every day babies are being killed, uh, hundreds of them every day, and nothing's done about it, but this coronavirus, uh, some people are dying from it, and we shut down the whole country. Hypocrisy. But at any rate, Lot was vexed, it says. His spirit was vexed because of what was going on. And that, that shows us that he, he was a believer, even though he was in the wrong place. The behavior of his neighbors was abhorrent to him, which is evidence of his righteousness. However, he chose to continue living in Sodom until God had to remove him forcibly. Lot's rescue from Sodom was due entirely to the grace of God. God shows his grace to humans because of who he is and not because of who we are. Lot didn't deserve grace any more than we deserve grace, but God showed him grace. So today we can identify with the vexation of spirit Lot must have endured. He lived in a world much like ours today. True believers are being pressured by the wicked to accept their actions and their lifestyles. It's coming down from our government nowadays that we have to accept the lifestyles and the, and the practices of these that are going against the, the very words of God. And it's a sad thing. But then in verse 9, we find this. God knows how to deliver the godly out of their trials. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Lot had to endure, we don't know how many years, of internal distress for his decision to live in Sodom. 
The Bible don't tell us how many years Lot spent in Sodom. But it must have been several. Uh, his daughters were raised there, apparently. Uh, they had the morals of the people of, of Sodom. And uh, we find that later when they were willing to get involved in incest with their dad. And, uh, but God delivered Lot, but God did it in his time. God reserves the ungodly for punishment at the future day of judgment. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20 and verse uh, 10 there, how it says uh, they're going to be cast in the lake of fire. And we know there's a great white throne judgment coming for all the unsaved. And they'll stand before God, and the Bible says the books will be open, and that's the accounts of their, their sinful lives and, and the sin that they've committed, and uh, they will be judged by the books. And I believe that judgment is going to determine uh, how severe of punishment they're going to suffer, but they're all going to suffer punishment, and they're all going to be cast in the lake of fire. If their name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, there's no hope. That's why we go out and we try to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. We try to get people saved. Because without being saved, there's no hope of heaven ever, ever, ever. For all eternity, the person who dies without Christ will suffer torment. Now, I believe the Bible teaches that some are going to suffer more torment than others, but all are going to suffer torment. And there's no relief, no relief from it. While both deliverance and judgment may seem to be delayed, they are certain. And they're certain according to God's timetable. Now we look around, I know you've done it, I've done it. We look around and we wonder, God, why don't you judge this? Why aren't you doing anything? We have the homosexual crowd pushing their lifestyle on us. We have the abortion crowd pushing their lifestyle on us. We have the false preachers that we've mentioned before. Why aren't you doing something? Listen, God don't work on our timetable. He works on his. And when he's ready to judge those, he will. But ultimately, they will be judged. Nobody gets away with sin. There is a day of judgment for all. So let's kind of wrap this up. There are a lot of false teachers in religion today. I mentioned some names that I consider to be false teachers because they're not preaching the truth like they ought to be preaching the truth. And they're in it for the money. That's pretty obvious. They have the money. Would to God they would take all that and use it to further the gospel. But there are false teachers today. I thought about, you know, I, I cited some of the TV evangelists and more popular names but think about this. There are false teachers in the cults. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons. There are false, false teachers in the Muslim religion. That whole thing is false. And there are false teachers uh, in liturgical churches, if you want to call them that. I'm talking about the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran and, the, and uh, some of those kind of churches, the Reformed. Uh, they're false teachers because they're teaching people a false doctrine. They're teaching people uh, work salvation. They're teaching people uh, things that aren't true in the Bible. Now, they've been there since, since uh, time immoral. Uh, 
Peter brought out false teachers have been there even in the Old Testament. They had to be dealt with. And so we need to weigh everything. As I said earlier, we need to weigh everything according to what does God say in his word. This should be the standard. This should be uh, everything we compare things to. And when we find folks who aren't teaching and preaching the word of God as it is and as it's supposed to be, then we need to mark them and stay away from them lest we be corrupted. A lot of false teachers in religion today, we have the cults, the healers, the TV preachers, and the mercenary uh, teachers who are in it for the money. We have the liturgical churches, but we have to keep up our guard and not get discouraged by their seeming success. Sometimes it gets discouraging to think how many people follow these false teachers. Joel Osteen uh, runs, uh, I believe, 25,000 on a Sunday morning. People flock to hear him, and yet he's not telling them the truth. He doesn't preach against sin. He doesn't preach the gospel. And yet people will flock there and put their money in the offering plate there. And that can get discouraging to those of us who are trying to do a work for the Lord. And, and uh, you know, our crowds are small and our, our finances are tight. But we have to understand God's in control of it. And one day, one day they will be called into account. But in the meantime, keep up your guard. Weigh everything against the word of God. Make sure that, 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 that you're following what the word of God says. Make sure of your salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. Not by works which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Father, thank you. Thank you once again for the testimony of Peter here and the warning that he gives that there is danger and we need to be on guard as a people. We need to be on guard against the false teachers and preachers they preach a broad way. They preach a comfortable way. They preach a, a, an easy way. But Lord, the way is sing, singular and, and narrow. And Jesus said it himself. And the way is only one way. And that's through Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll continue to bless those of us who do preach the true gospel and do our dead-level dead best to preach the Word of God as you would have us to preach it. And use us to your praise and glory. Help us not to get discouraged or dismayed with the success of the false teacher. He'll one day pay a high price for his false teaching. Help us to, to understand that and to live that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.